The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. If you know precisely what is meant by Mamelon and Ravelin, you can be a modern major general, according to Gilbert and Sullivan, writing at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. We'll find out about Mamelon and Ravelin and Gabion and Fascine and all kinds of 19th century military engineering terms and see how they were put to use in the Union Siege of Vicksburg. That's the subtitle of tonight's book, Engineering Victory, by Justin S. Solonik. Join us, and we learn about siegecraft tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you, as is true most weeks, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking on behalf of the university. I leave that to the Board of Governors of the University of North Carolina system who are in town this week to discuss whatever it is they're going to do. Their last major action was to fire the president of the UNC system, pointing out he had done an outstanding job and was excellent in every way, and they had nothing to complain about. They just wanted to fire him. And so they've We'll, we'll see what they come up this week. Perhaps they'll decide that ECU is, uh, has an excellent football team, so they'll abolish that. We don't know. But we're here to talk tonight about Civil War talk. It's a beautiful night out. It is April of 2015, early in April, the nicest time of year in many ways here in eastern North Carolina. Uh, blossoms starting to appear on the trees. The weather is perfectly temperate. The Stanley Cup playoffs are approaching, and last night the Carolina Hurricanes were kind enough to lie down and allow my Detroit Red Wings to steamroll them 3-2 to two and come within one more game of making the playoffs. We can all enjoy that, unless you're a fan of the other how many teams there are in the NHL. It's the 150th anniversary of the end of the Civil War and the approaching uh, nice weather and rebirth 
reminds us in some way of the uh, feelings people must have had a century and a half ago, uh, not just the new life of spring, but the uh, long-sought, long-awaited end of the war and the end of the killing finally happening. Now, 150 years later, we find ourselves fascinated to learn more about it. If you're interested in doing so in person, uh, consider giving a call to Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours in New Orleans. They're organizing what used to be the Matterhorn Travel uh, Civil War Tour. This hallowed ground uh, in May of 2015 will be driving around through Virginia and Pennsylvania, Maryland, to some very interesting and well-presented Civil War sites. Hope you can join me for that if you're so interested. And meanwhile, on campus here, just uh, this afternoon, looking at the newsletter of the American Historical Association, the Perspectives, there's a four-article uh, mini-seminar on history as a book discipline. Here in Civil War Talk Radio, most of our guests, not all, but by far the majority are authors of books about the Civil War. Not all professors, but all authors. And the historical profession uh, in this seminar was conducting a debate. Is history as a book discipline coming to a, a crossroads? Have, has digital uh, technology brought us to the, the end of the book? Or at least to the replacement of the book as the main form of conveying historical information? My students and I discussed this today. Uh, we have a vested interest in saying no, and, and we think not. But things are certainly changing. The, the most striking line in the uh, article, uh, in the set of articles, was one author who said, uh, I think she was on a panel with William Cronin, a, a wonderful historian, author of Changes in the Land and History of Chicago and other things. He mentioned... Uh, he said he no longer has any books. He just keeps everything on his tablet. And the author said the entire room at the conference had a collective seizure to hear a major historian say he no longer owned any books. And I sort of had one, too. I'm, I'm not sure I'm ready to even contemplate that sort of future. But we don't have to worry about that tonight. We've got an author with us. We've got authors coming up next week. We've got John Fox, author of Stewart's Finest Hour, The Rider on McClellan, June 1862. That's John J. Fox III, in case you are wanting to be sure which John Fox will be joining us. A week after that, we've got Adam Dean, who has written An Agrarian Republic, Farming, Anti-Slavery Politics, and Nature Parks in the Civil War Era. Something different indeed. The Civil War Guerrilla will be our topic the week after that, Unfolding the Black Flag in History, Memory, and Myth, uh, a collection of essays edited by Joseph Bailon Jr. and Matt C. Hulbert. Matt will be joining us to talk about it. We get to May 2015, and on May 6th, we'll have Tom Parson from the Corinth uh, Civil War Interpreter Center. He has also written a book about the campaign and battle of Tupelo, Harrisburg, Mississippi, June through July 1864. I think I identified the subject of that book incorrectly last week, and I apologize uh, for doing so uh, to Tom Parson. We'll get it right when we talk with him. And then after that, it'll be May 13th, Marching Home, Union Veterans and Their Unending Civil War with Brian Matthew Jordan. So lots of interesting stuff coming up in the, the month or so ahead, and more things after that. We'll get you caught up as we get there. But tonight, we talk about the Siege of Vicksburg, Mississippi, 1863, the climactic battle of Grant's Western campaign uh, to capture that citadel. And while we've talked with others, Michael Ballard has been on the show to talk with us about Vicksburg. John Marslack has been here more than once on, on different topics. I'm sure we talked about Vicksburg at some point. But the siege itself, as a, a feat of engineering, that really has not been explored in detail uh, until now. The book is called Engineering Victory, The Union Siege of Vicksburg. Uh, its author is Justin S. Solonic. Uh, Dr. Solonic, are you there? Yes, sir. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. 
So you have produced uh, – well, first, am I saying your last name properly before we start? Uh, it's actually Solonik, but I'll take anything close. <laughs> well, I've, I once had somebody mispronounce my last name, and I've still not gotten over it. So, uh, <laughs> no, I understand, I, but Solonik is, uh, is the, uh, the correct pronunciation, but just call me Justin. That's fine. Well, well, thank you, Dr. Solonik. I, I will call you Justin, and please call me Jerry, and that will oh, make sure, it easier on all of us. So tell us um, – you wrote this while studying at uh, Texas Christian University, is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. That's where I uh, received my Ph.D. in 2013, and where I'm currently teaching history courses as an adjunct instructor. And uh, was Stephen Woodward your advisor for this? Uh, yes, sir. So, uh, well, for, say hello to him for me, please. Oh, uh, I he, will, he, yes, yes, yes. He, he has been... He has been on the show. We've we've talked about his work in the past, and uh, uh, certainly a, uh, a a major figure in the Civil War world. So, what brought you to an interest in the Civil War? Um, well, I've actually been interested in the Civil War on and off since I was probably about twelve years old. I'm initially from Connecticut, and I spent a lot of time in uh, my younger days. I'm not that old now, but but it seems like a long time ago when you do a PhD. <laughs> Um, uh, going to the different battlefields in the East, like Gettysburg and Antietam and what have you, um, with my father. And I always just loved, um, loved the subject. It was only something that I wanted to keep going with, and one degree led to the next. And so now here I am in Texas trying to avoid the tornadoes this time of year. Well, it... So, from Connecticut to Texas, uh, the next step is Mississippi. What what brought you to the Vicksburg campaign? Well, when I moved uh, down here initially, I had gone to uh, the Vicksburg National Battlefield Park, and it's it's a wonderful, wonderful park. But um, the one question that always popped into my mind when I went there was, how was Grant's army, one that's reportedly always been uh, deficient, having a deficient engineering arm, a very talented army, but one that didn't have the, the, necessarily the best tools for engineering's sake. How are they able to prosecute the largest and most successful siege in American history? And when you go there today, uh, certain parts of it, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware, some of our listeners might be aware, you can see certain parts of the line wonderfully, but there's a lot of trees and other things in between left over from the Works Progress Administration uh, that makes viewing that field a bit more challenging than areas perhaps like Gettysburg or Antietam or, or perhaps even Chickamauga. Um, so I was always curious about how they were able to achieve that, and from there I started looking into the uh, the different books available. Uh, namely, uh, the most detailed up to that point had been Michael Ballard's three-volume, uh, not Michael Ballard, excuse me, Ed Barz's three-volume uh, mm. set on Vicksburg, and he details the different approaches in a more linear fashion. And Mike Ballard touches on it, but uh, he's looking at the overall campaign in his book on Vicksburg, and then uh, he came out also well, uh, with uh, a book about Grant and his generals, which uh, he had talked about, I believe, on your show. I caught that episode uh, mm-hmm. a little while back. And also from there, there was Warren Graybow's 98 Days. But uh, the siege, um, and this isn't to the fault, they're all wonderful books. It was just that the siege uh, wasn't the focus, and, and, and because they were doing more campaign studies, so I thought it would be an interesting story to tell about how Grant's engineers were able to pull this off. So. Well, the book is very interesting because we, we get a primer not just in the siege of Vicksburg, but in the whole concept of uh, siege warfare and military engineering Mm -hmm. in uh, American military history up to that point. Uh, What we're going to do now is take a a short break and uh, a little on the early side, but we'll take a quick break. Uh, We'll come back and find out about the answer to this question. How did Grant's army with so few engineers uh, find a way to conduct the, the greatest and most successful siege in American military history, uh, certainly to that point. Our guest tonight, Justin S. Salonik. I got it right that time. Uh, I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com 
follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P. O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking this evening with Justin S. Solonic, author of Engineering Victory, the Union Siege of Vicksburg. Justin, let me start with the uh, the the real crux of, of your argument, as I see it here, Vicksburg, we learn from most textbooks or simple accounts, was starved into submission by Grant's army. You argue that it's not starvation at all that wins this battle. Uh, no, I would not. I would say it wasn't starvation as the, the primary factor, um, whereas that may have come into play a little bit at the end. It was more successful due to the ability of Grant's army one, as we had talked about before the break, uh, being deficient in engineers and their ability to adapt and improvise, and while at the same time implementing uh, important elements of West Point engineering theory. What's interesting about all of the professional uh, engineering officers of the Civil War is that at one point in their career or another, if they had gone to West Point, and some did not, but those that did had studied under uh, West Point's premier engineering instructor, uh, instructor Dennis Hart Mahan. And, uh, and then engineering theory at West Point was pretty uh, advanced for its day. Um, but nevertheless, it was that ability to combine uh, Mahan's interpretation of Vauban's siegecraft, Vauban, uh, for those unfamiliar with him, being the French engineer of the 17th century, uh, the father of the attack for sieges that served under Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King. So it's really Mahan's interpretation of Vauban mixed with this uh, this ingenuity and improvisation that sealed the Confederacy's uh, fate. As I like to oftentimes tell people, if it was just siegecraft, there would have been no reason to prosecute forward-moving approach trenches towards Vicksburg. They would have just sat there and waited. And certainly, it was a more active event than, than that. So, the while there are not many engineers in the Army, everyone who went to West Point was exposed to military engineering, weren't they? Uh, yes. The, the way the engineering curriculum at West Point was set up is basically, eventually you get a four-year program at West Point uh, under Sylvanus Thayer from about 1817 forward, and the Thayer method, and essentially the first two years were uh, designated more for mathematics, foreign languages, drawing, and in the final year, students uh, conducted <clears throat> uh, courses in engineering, uh, nor- mostly through recitation of the different manuals and whatnot, and some hands-on experience once they created a Department of Practical Engineering uh, at West Point later on uh, in the early 1840s. Uh, but from that point on, uh, as Mike Ballard says in his book, how much would they have remembered when they got there? Is always the question if they weren't with the Corps of Engineers. Uh, it might be akin to someone uh, like us today, perhaps learning geometric proofs 
as high school students and being called out to do that kind of work today, it might not be as successful as it was when we were students. So, hmm. yeah, that, that, I'm thinking back. Those were fun at the time, but I would have to <laughs> do some brushing up to have any luck with them. Exactly. So, so these officers uh, from Grant on down have all, at least the professional officers, have all been exposed to engineering. But those who yeah. are actually members of the Corps of Engineers, uh, how many are we talking about in this in the Army of well, Tennessee? And that's the, the, Tennessee. the interesting part of it is actually I have an entire index uh, devoted to trying to quantify and come up with a number. Believe it or not, it depends on a number of factors. According to Grant's original memoirs, um, he claims there were only four engineer officers with the Union Army. Uh, he doesn't mention them by name, but from uh, when he claims that there were four at the beginning of the siege, we can deduce who those were. Uh, the top achievers probably being Frederick Prime, uh, who was a West Point graduate, assigned to the Corps of Engineers, and was assigned uh, to take over the entire operations of the siege. Uh, another uh, individual named uh, Haynes, who was the engineer on the staff of the 13th Corps Front. Um, and then from there we would have had Andrew Hickenlooper, perhaps, who was a civil engineer, uh, turned military engineer, self-taught military engineer, but he had performed as a civil engineer in Ohio before the war broke out and had been an artillery officer at Shiloh before uh, being promoted to an, uh, McPherson staff of the 17th Corps as an engineering officer. And then uh, perhaps from there, he would have also included uh, other individuals on Sherman's front, namely uh, an individual by the name of Cossack. Uh, but again, when you read uh, the, the accounts, oftentimes, uh, so Grant will tell us there's four, and then from there what will end up happening is, is when you read the official ORs, you get a, a list of more but interestingly, some names are omitted from that list of known engineers. So why the two chief engineers, uh, Prime and Comstock, I hadn't mentioned Comstock yet, but Comstock was actually another engineering officer professional in the Corps of Engineers that had been uh, shuttled out west during the siege, um, and he served on the, uh, the 13th Corps front on the south of the lines. And then once Prime became ill, we're not sure why during the siege, he just reports illness and has to retire from the siege, and Comstock takes over as the chief engineer. But one thing they say in their reports is that a general superintendence over the whole line by the chief engineer was not possible. And what, what people need to realize is that in, in the terms of a siege, what ends up happening is these engineering officers, even if they might only hold the rank of lieutenant or captain, their rank becomes magnified, and they act with more uh, authority than perhaps they would during normal operations because they're called upon for their expertise. And, of course, there were those, as you had mentioned, who had received West Point training and able to implement it, namely um, Sherman, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, Sherman uh, was a very brilliant general. Uh, he graduated with top marks in his class, ended up going into the artillery, which was still considered an academic field just below engineering. Uh, but he was very active at the Siege of Vicksburg, directing things on his own front. And there's a wonderful story at one point in the Siege of Vicksburg where Sherman's on his way to confer with a, a, a lesser general, not, not just in, in rank, not, not in ability, but A.J. Smith. And on his way to, to meet A.J. Smith, Sherman runs across a, a group of soldiers that have been detailed to construct gabions, these wicker baskets that you put dirt in in order to shore up and revet trenches and artillery fortifications. And they're just kind of standing around. And he asks them what they're doing, and he hands them a letter, and he says, well, do you know how to, how to make uh, gabions and, and fascines? And they say no. So Sherman gets off his horse and demands an axe, and they hand it to him. And here we have a, a two-star general. You know, uh, with an axe hacking away, showing them how to make gabions and fascines. Um, so, kind of a, a very hands-on. Very hands-on in some part, but it depended upon which generals they were. Sherman was very hands-on. McPherson, although initially sent west to serve on Grant's staff as an engineer, we actually see him in many ways on the 17th Corps front, deferring to Hickenlooper, and giving Hickenlooper carte blanche for the most part. But on the southern part of the line where we have McClernard, more of a, a general who achieved his rank through his political connections, um, we see a little bit more stasis. Uh, his chief engineer of the Corps was Haynes, a very talented young graduate at West Point, but in many ways, McClerner's micromanagement tended to be less effective than Sherman's. Um, 
and, and therefore we see a bit of a stifling on that part of the line, and the forward-moving approach trenches don't get started till later in the siege. With, with three, a Union Army of three corps, to, to give listeners a sense if they don't have their Vicksburg maps handy, mm-hmm. uh, the city is on the east bank of the Mississippi River, and the Confederate lines uh, facing Grant's army to further to the east connect mm-hmm. to the river north and south, and they run about seven miles. So to lay siege to the city, Grant has to deploy his troops and dig trenches uh, almost double that, almost 15 miles from the river north of the city to the river south of the city. Is that about right? Yes, that, that's an accurate description. So that's a, a long, uh, that, that's a lot of digging. Uh, the, the technical term, as I've learned from your book, uh, is circumvallation. Yeah. And according to theory, you, you know, Vauban would have you just dig one really long 15-mile trench all the way around the enemy. Mm-hmm. But Grant's army doesn't do that. No, you're correct, they don't. One of the main inhibitions is the terrain around Vicksburg. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's even, uh, one can see it even today. Uh, due to the nature of the, of the soil, uh, what we call lowest soil, uh, the <clears throat> erosion around there tends to be uh, quite sharp, and so we get a lot of undulating hills and steep ravines, and so it's not really feasible in order to, to do that. Um, but once that line of circumvallation is completed, Grant's troops are able to do it by making detached works, rifle pits, uh, parallel, some uh, demi-parallels, uh, and then from there they start pro- uh, pushing together their forward approach trenches with the ultimate goal of either getting artillery close enough to Vicksburg in order to uh, batter the wall down and then storm the fortifications, or uh, to undermine the enemy's works is, would be the alternate strategy that they, what they end up doing and preparing to do even more. So when, they, when Grant's army first arrives outside of Vicksburg, they try to just storm in and they get thrown back. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in May 1863. So the siege itself, you, you, you dig these trenches around. Now you've got Pemberton's Confederate Army trapped inside. Mm-hmm. But as we said at the beginning of the segment, it's not simply waiting for them to starve, but there's an active attempt to do this. And literally, the Grant's men are digging their way toward the Confederate lines, it sounds like. Yes, uh, and the reason being, and, and what folks need to remember, is that armies are living and breathing entities, and with Grant's troops just sitting there, that's also dangerous for the army of the Tennessee, his army. The reason why he attempts assaults on the 19th and 22nd, there's two real reasons. Number one, uh, he feels that uh, it'll be hurtful to morale if they just stop their aggressive approach and just try to outweigh the enemy. But on top of it, too, what one needs to remember is that up to that point, Grant's uh, Overland can uh, not Overland, the maneuver campaign, excuse me, uh, he had won five consecutive battles relatively uh, quickly, and at the last battle at the, at the Big Black uh, River Bridge, um, the Confederates are pushed aside, and they're, they're really streaming back into Vicksburg. So uh, Grant believes now that, or believed rather at that time, that the army of uh, Vicksburg's on its last legs. Uh, but as we know from the May 20, uh, May 22nd assault, it's going to be harder than that. And so the reason why they had to dig these forward-moving approach trenches was in order to safely traverse the no-man's land, as you might call it, that dead ground that was so problematic during the May 9, uh, 22nd assault. And um, one of the also the primary reasons for Confederate capitulation has to do with the failure of, of uh, Joseph Johnston to uh, relieve Pemberton's forces. Pemberton had been ordered by Davis not to uh, let Vicksburg fall. And so really all he can do is attempt a breakout, which isn't likely as Grant's army gets bigger and bigger. And without a relief force to help break him out, there's really not much he can do at that time. So... He's stuck in there. He's not going anywhere. But Grant can't just idly sit and wait. So he's trying to advance with, uh, with these. He's got the the long trench parallel to the Confederate lines, the circumvallation, mm-hmm. which, as you say, it, it's not a single trench, but crowns the heights and, and avoids the ravines and so on. But he's got got the Confederates surrounded. Mm-hmm. Then, 
how far away are the lines at this point? How far is the, the main Union line from the main Confederate line? They range. Uh, on an average, we would probably see them, if one went there today, at under 600 yards uh, from the main line. Certainly some as short as maybe 380 to 400 yards, depending upon which part of the line uh, they're at. And when they start prosecuting their primary approach trenches, they start to try to hug the roads, the main roads leading into the uh, the city of uh, Vicksburg, because those are really the flattest and easiest points of egress into into Vicksburg, and even today they are. Um, so, if if you're watching the Masters Golf Tournament this weekend, it's it's a long par five between the two lines. Yes. Uh, it, yeah, it's actually, but, uh, compared to the traditional siege as described by Vauban, it's actually closer than what you uh, would see in your earlier European sieges. So so they're fairly close together, and they're trying to get closer by digging uh, trenches, approach trenches toward the Confederates, and then another set of parallels. Uh, they will actually get closer still. Now, what stops the Confederates from just killing Union soldiers while they're digging in no man's land? Well, they try. They try. But what stops them predominantly is the ability of Grant's uh, artillery and of his uh, infantry to achieve fire superiority. And one of the uh, main innovations of uh, Vauban, that French engineer I had been telling uh, mm-hmm. folks about uh, during the reign of Louis XIV in the, in the 17th century, but as the siege of Maastricht, uh, Vauban... Uh, his big contribution to the art of attack wasn't the, par- the uh, approach trench. That had been there uh, uh, since before him. What he added to the formula was what was called the parallel trench, these arms that almost extend out of if the approach trench, if you can imagine, zigzagging toward the Confederate lines. These supporting trenches pop up on the sides of them in order to house both batteries of artillery and sharpshooters. And so... A couple of things are happen, uh, happened at this time now. While the Confederates are trying to uh, uh, fire at the Union, uh, Grant is able to quickly, once he trapped Pemberton in Vicksburg, was able to actually uh, reconnect to the northern logistical lines via the Mississippi River, that prime artery into the Midwest. So he had a lot of ammunition and supplies coming down the Mississippi River to him, uh, ammunition being among them. So we get accounts of Union soldiers in, in, the, in these rifle pits going through anywhere from, from 40 to 100 rounds of, uh, of, of ammunition, which at that time is a lot. By modern standards, it wouldn't be, of course. But at that time, uh, with a rifle musket, that, that's considerable. Um, and, and able to basically force the Confederates to keep down. And they will. They, they did try uh, their best to, to deter all of this. Uh, once the Union lines got closer, sometimes along it, they, uh, the Confederates tried countermining, in which they would try to dig underneath the uh, Union mine and then try to try, try to blow it up. However, uh, they weren't uh, successfully able to do that in most circumstances. So, were there any? Were there a lot of raids by the Confederates? Uh, sallies, or they send a, a party to go out into no man's land and try to we, damage we the a- Union? We get a few of those on the southern part of the line, namely in the sectors of Wyoming and Heron. They were two divisions that were detached to uh, bolster Grant's army, not initially part of the Army of the Tennessee. Uh, but due to the uh, these, these supporting trenches that I'm talking about, uh, they really weren't able to, to do that. Another thing that, that's hampering all of this is that the primary time of day that these Union soldiers dig is at night. And in an era that that's you know pre-night vision, uh, night night battles are virtually not not feasible during the Civil War. You really almost never hear about them. Um, so it's very hard to try to hit these these guys as they're digging in the middle of the darkness. So we've got uh, like moles, the Union troops digging across no man's land, digging approach trenches and parallels, and thinking about digging mines, all these things happening at night, the Confederates trying to keep them away, Union forces shooting at the Confederates on their ramparts to keep them from shooting. Lots going on here. We'll take another short break and come back and talk more about the Siege of Vicksburg with our guest tonight, Justin S. Solonik, author of Engineering Victory, the Union Siege of Vicksburg. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Gary Prokopovich talking today with Justin S. Solonik, author of Engineering Victory, The Union Siege of Vicksburg. And we've been talking about some of the technical aspects of how one conducts a siege in the Civil War era, uh, digging trenches to approach the Confederate lines. Uh, Justin, one of the things that I found interesting, uh, we were talking earlier about gabions, these uh, cylindrical wicker baskets full of dirt that soldiers use as shields or to brace up walls or other purposes. In digging trenches, the Union soldiers improvised some uh, uh, some remarkable devices to shield themselves while they're doing this. Uh, in particular, uh, tell us about the land gunboat. Well, the land gunboat is actually one of the more uh, famous uh, anecdotes from the Vicksburg siege. And we see that created uh, on um, Hickenlooper's front of the 17th Corridor and what's called Logan's Approach. Uh, usually when you when one got to the late, latter point of a siege, the approach trench turned into a sap, which essentially was a, an approach trench that used those wicker baskets or gabions and a sap roller. And the traditional sap roller was a large version of the gabion. So imagine this big wicker basket packed with fascines and put on its side and, and pushed forward. Well, not doing that, the soldiers in the trenches and, and, and with Hickenlooper at the helm decided that they would try to take this uh, railroad flat car, some described as a railroad flat car, and they decide to bolster the front of it with cotton bales, and they are going to, and then they push it forward in front of them uh, to make this kind of rolling and mobile um, <clears throat> sap roller. Unfortunately, though, it ended up being a bit of a failure. Um, Samuel H. Lockett, the uh, chief engineer of the Confederate defense, is also a very, very uh, brilliant engineer, at this time was uh, watching this in front of the 3rd Louisiana Redan, and one of his soldiers used a musket with a piece of port fire. At least that's how it's described in, in some sources. It could be a, perhaps a, an artillery fuse packed with uh, something lit like cotton. Uh, sometimes it's described as just being a musket ball wrapped in some kind of cloth material. But regardless, essentially what they're using is the musket to hurl this fiery piece of material into the cotton bales and light it on fire, which ended up happening. Uh, and, and it stopped the land gunboat, as it was called. It uh, burned, and then after that they resorted to a more traditional sap roller. So there was a reason why traditional sap rollers work better than the land gunboats. <laughs> But uh, still, the, the improvisation of Grant's troops is at work there. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. We see a lot of that. And also with, uh, for example, Henry C. Foster's Coonskin's Tower is another famous example. Tell us about that. I was just going to ask about that. Oh, yeah, that's another one of the more interesting stores I always thought. Uh, Henry C. Coonskin Tower was actually a second lieutenant in the 23rd Indiana on Logan's front, also under uh, where Hickenlooper and, and Logan's approach was. And about, about the, the distance where Battery Hickenlooper is today when you go to Vicksburg, uh, he came up with an idea. And uh, Coonskin Foster was known to be a pretty uh, good shot. You know, he was known for his marksmanship, and there's reports of him having spent some time in between the lines trying to snipe at the Confederates prior to this. And he came up with an idea that was approved, and it was to build this tower. Imagine almost like a, a, a larger version of a, a narrow log cabin, almost like with children's Lincoln logs is the best way to kind of uh, a picture it for those of you who remember. And there's a picture of it actually still out there in one of the book. And he set it up so that he could climb up the tower, look into Vicksburg, and also snipe at the enemy from it. There's actually another kind of more entertaining story in which, you know, sieges could be notoriously boring at different times, and Grant actually goes over to Coonskin's Tower, and there's a guard posted at the bottom in order to keep people from indiscriminately climbing up it because it could be dangerous. Uh, at one point, soldiers even charged admission to other soldiers to climb the tower. And um, Grant, uh, the, the guard, actually kind of wandered off, and Grant climbs up the tower, and the guard at the bottom starts yelling at this figure on the top of the tower to get down and cursing at him. And it was sometimes hard to tell that Grant was Grant because, as many people uh, know, he oftentimes had a penchant for the casual, as I, as I say in the book. He always wore this field blouse and a slouch hat, and it was hard to tell he was Grant sometimes. And he came back down the tower and wandered off, and the guard's comrade says, well, do you know who that was? And he says, well, no. And and they, well, it's, it's General Grant. You've been yelling at him. So the guard runs over and apologizes to him, and you know, Grant let him off. So, <laughs> but. There's, a, of course, a similar story about Lincoln at, at Fort Stevens during early yeah. trade in 1864. Uh, but there, the, the, the yelling soldiers usually identified as uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. The, mm. the story is too good to be true. It's probably not true, but it does make a good story. Uh, I'll... I don't know if the Grant story is true or not, but but the uh, um, the Lincoln it, one is certainly exaggerated. Yeah, sometimes I think it's um it's kind of it's always one of those things, Jerry. Well, I guess on the one hand, mm-hmm. we don't have a reason yet to not believe it, but of course, could it be an exaggeration? Well, as we know, there's a lot of that with soldiers during the Civil War. So true. Um, yeah, but but we'll take it for what it's worth, I guess, right now. Though, but the tower itself is definitely was a reality. Uh, there's a wonderful picture of it too, uh, yes. preserved at the Chicago Historical Society. So, so we've got these these towers, these approach trenches. Now they are saps as they get closer. Uh, we've we've got all this designed to bring up artillery uh, to to try to knock down the Confederate walls or or blast their way into Vicksburg. It's, one point you make, though, is that Grant doesn't actually have any siege artillery. All the artillery is field artillery. It's much lighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he'd actually had siege artillery, could they have blasted their way into Vicksburg, do you think? Um, it, it's conceivable. Um, certainly it would have been. Um, Grant really never intended to besiege Vicksburg. I think he kind of wasn't thinking that far ahead. And certainly siege artillery would have slowed down his army as it made its way down the Mississippi and across through mainland uh, Mississippi on its way to Vicksburg. Once he got to Vicksburg, he tried to requisi- uh, requisition um, smaller corn mortars, they're called, which are actually very small pieces of siege artillery that would lob shells over once um, the trajectory, a higher trajectory was needed as the sap approaches got to within a few feet of the walls. Uh, the head of the War Department, uh, not War Department, excuse me, the... Uh, Ripley, the head of the uh, ordnance mm-hmm. uh, department, didn't didn't give didn't send them to him for some reason. We don't know why. Uh, the Navy did loan him some heavy guns, though, with uh, with the sailors to man them, uh, some Dahlgrens and some other ordnance pieces. And uh, perhaps if he had had them, it would have um, it would have affected a breach. 
There was a time in late June with the field artillery that he has. He does try a large artillery uh, bombardment, and it didn't yield the results that he wanted. And so then he uh, goes back to, to mining, and that's when we get eventually the mine explosions of June 25th and um, July 1st uh, on now, the picket loopers front. When I got to page 185, and you're describing the amount of explosive it takes to create a, a crater of a given size, I, mm-hmm. uh, I, I see in the middle of the page the equation C equals 11 divided by 6 times Q times L cubed, and I thought uh, it was my understanding there would be no math, to quote uh, Chevy Chase many years ago. Uh, (laughs) Well, what I was trying to do was to show at this point that equation actually comes from the the engineering manual, uh, one of the engineering manuals of Dennis Hartmahan at West Point. What I wanted to (laughs) show is that this was the type of thing that professionals would have been taught uh, in their engineering courses. And the really interesting thing about it is actually um, uh, military mining at that point uh, with regards to using gunpowder as, as, as a medium of explosive was really in its infancy. And it was very theoretical. And there was a whole theoretical parameter in that uh, uh, text. And, and the one assumption they have to begin with is what kind of shape does it uh, do, does a explosion yield. And so Mahan uh, actually synthesizes other engineers' beliefs, and he comes up with an inverted right truncated cone, which I put a picture of in, because by words, probably to most people, it wouldn't make any sense. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But then from there, um, what he does is he gives an equation of how to generate a common mine. And a common mine is just a theoretical standard in which you can then judge um, other types of mines that one would uh, try to detonate, whether it be an overcharge or an undercharge mine. There's actually more equations on how to achieve those results, but to spare the readership, I got back to the story, because since there's really no evidence that Hickenlooper used this equation, uh, it didn't seem uh, necessary to go into any more depth than that. But essentially what Mahan was doing was, was he was deriving an equation that an engineer in the field could use if only the line of least resistance, in other words, the depth of the mine, and the type of soil that the engineer was digging in was known. Now, by modern standards, which have to be very careful to judge in history, this, this might not even fly as, as acceptable today. There's a lot of unknowns. He's making a lot of assumptions at this time. Uh, but he's using what he has to work with. And so from that point of view, I think it's quite admirable on his part. So they do... Grant's army does get close enough to <laughs> dig a mine to pack it with powder, following this equation or not. Yeah. Uh, and and you mentioned two of them on, on June 25th, and again on July 1st, they set these off. Yeah. Uh, what success do they have? Well, the first I would qualify as not being very successful. What ends up happening is, is they generate by by the the various descriptions that we have. And even though they give us different dimensions, if we kind of look at them on my hand standard, uh, what, what he detonated on the first one is what we would probably call a, uh, an undercharged mine, one in which it was shallow with a wide opening. And that might seem to be, that seems very effective visually, but what happens is in the type of soil there in this lowest soil, the explosion actually pulverized the soil and turns it into almost like a sand. So once the assault party rushed into the hole to try to get up the defense, they really got trapped in the hole. They couldn't climb out of it. Then they also didn't blow up enough of the Redan, Redan being the type of fortification that the Confederates had built on the Jackson Road going into Vicksburg where this took place. And then the second time what happens is with that being a bit of a failure, uh, they detonated another mine which blow, blew up the rest of the Redan, uh, this fortification, but no assault is conducted because they don't want a replay of, of the, the tragedy that happened on the 25th. So while those two isolated events perhaps were not successful, the, the one success that it did yield was proof that mines could be successfully detonated underneath these works. And as a result, Grant has on the book's orders, at least, that on July 6th, as many of the mines as they can construct will be detonated and an all-out assault will take place. The reason why I say will is, well, because Vicksburg surrendered before then on July 4th, so that assault never took place. 
So, the, I mean, the writing is on the wall. The Confederates can see these explosions happening, and if, mm. if the Yankees can do two of them, they could do two more, four more, six more. The, the, so it, it makes sense to surrender at that point. Uh, right. We're just about out of time. Let me, and I would be really curious to to ponder how this affected Grant's thinking at the famous crater in the east. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but we'll leave that for another day. I'll leave you with a uh, a giant question uh, and only a minute or so to answer it. Uh, <laughs> the Civil War, based on this combination of uh, Vauban from the time of the 17th century and trenches from World War One, the first modern war or the last Napoleonic War? I call it a transitional event and a transitional war during this period. And I explain it more thoroughly for those interested in case we don't have time, Jerry, at the end of the book. I think a lot of times we try to force the Civil War into one category or another, and that's not necessarily always the case. To, to claim last Napoleonic in a lot of ways tends to claim that the Napoleonic Wars were not progressive, that they weren't modern. In their own time, they were. Um, but if I think if forced to choose what we'd have to say is that it's closer to the siegecraft and the tradition of Vauban than really a foreshadowing of the, the war to come in the next century. And I, and I give it more treatment at the end of the book for those who are interested. Well, it is worth getting this book to read that treatment at the end and, and all the uh, really fascinating details of siege warfare. It, thought about abstractly, many people might think a siege is the least interesting form of warfare. <laughs> the two armies just sit there uh, mm-hmm. until one of them starves or the other one get gets tired and goes home but as you show it's a, a constantly active uh exercise really of ingenuity on both sides yeah. improvising their way to, to try to make this happen so listeners engineering victory the union siege of vicksburg by justin s Salonic uh from southern illinois university press uh you'll enjoy it you'll learn something i know i did justin thank you for being on the show Oh, no, my pleasure, and I hope that we get to chat again. It was a lot of fun. Oh, I hope so, too. And listeners, thank you, as always, for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.